Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. On today's episode, Andrew Schwartz speaks with Rian Eisler. Dr. Eisler is a social system scientist, cultural historian, futurist, an attorney whose research, writing, and speaking has transformed the lives of people worldwide. Internationally known for her bestseller, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, and for her book on economics, The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics, her newest book, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, shows how to construct a more equitable, sustainable, and less violent world based on partnership rather than domination. And now, here's... Andrew and Rian. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Ecosiv podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Schwartz, co-founder and vice president of Ecosiv. And I have a wonderful, wonderful uh, treat for us today. The privilege of having as a special guest, uh, Dr. Rian Eisler. Uh, Dr. Eisler, uh, is famous uh, author, famous speaker, social system scientist, a cultural historian, a futurist, I think even an attorney um, yeah. whose research and writings and speaking, I mean, it, it literally is, is transforming lives around the world uh, and has for, for decades. Um, of course, internationally known for her bestseller, uh, The Chalice and the Blade, um, Our History, Our Future, um, as well as, as uh, her book, on economics, the real wealth of nations, creating a caring economy, uh, which of course resonates well with with those of us working on on well-being economies. Um, And then even her newest book, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, uh, which she co-authored with uh, anthropologist Douglas Fry. So uh, lots and lots for us to talk about uh, because uh, Rianne here, covers so many different topics across so many different uh, disciplinary boundaries and silos, uh, which is what we need to do if we're going to really address uh, complex social and environmental challenges, which are not themselves uh, divided up into neat silos. Um, So something I'm hoping we talk about today, especially growing out of of her most recent book, but kind of a thread, I think, across all of of her work, um, how can we construct a more equitable, sustainable, less violent world uh, that's based on partnership rather than to domi- uh, rather than domination, right? So, um, of course, that could that could take a lifetime to discuss. We don't have a lifetime. We'll have you know a, a period, you know, an episode's worth of conversation about this. We'll scratch the surface and dig in deep. Uh, but I think we're going to have fun. So, Dr. Eisler, thank you for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Andrew. So as I was just describing, something that that I'm really excited about uh, talking about some more with you is that you famously describe what we might say are two paradigms for society, a partnership uh, model as in a, in a dominator, domination model. And if I understand correctly, you're, you're arguing that more or less our present modern industrial civilization is really the latter. Um, so I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what is a, a dominator society, um, how do its features manifest in our present social and economic organization, and then we can talk about uh, what a, a tr- what an alternative would look like. 
Well, I, I think I, I want to clarify that really we have a mix. There are trends towards partnership and there have been uh, for at least 300 years in the West, uh, which I'd love to talk about. Uh, but yes, we have a domination heritage and um, we need to excavate it. We need to understand it and we need to leave it behind. But my work is not just about deconstruction, it's about reconstruction. So I love your emphasis on building this better future. Yes, I, I love that you, you push back a little bit on even my framing of the question as sort of reflecting a kind of a, a dominator, uh, you know, dichotomy, the us versus that partnership versus dominator. Uh, you know, we have one or the other. It can't be a mix. It's like, no, okay, reality is more complex. It's more of a mix. Um, that's perfect. Uh, well, what, I, what I've introduced is really the partnership domination social scale. And it is true that there are these two ends, you know, one the partnership, one the domination end. And I'll, I'll backtrack a little because uh, I have a great deal of passion for this work. And uh, it is rooted in my own early childhood as a child refugee with my parents from Nazi Europe. And I certainly, uh, when I was very little, witnessed uh, cruelty and violence on Crystal Night, a gang of Gestapo men came to our home and dragged my father off. Uh, so I witnessed that. But I also witnessed something else that I today call spiritual courage. And that's not courage like we're, you know, to kill the dragon or kill the enemy, but the courage to stand up against injustice out of love. And my mother displayed that courage. She recognized one of the Gestapo men uh, that came to our home uh, as a former errand boy of the family business, an Austrian Nazi. And she got furious. She said, how dare you do this to this man who has been so kind to you? I want him back. Now, my mother could have been killed. A lot of Jewish people were killed that night. But by a miracle, she wasn't. By a miracle, she actually did get my father back for some money, eventually past hands. And by another miracle, we were able to escape uh, to Cuba, uh, where I grew up in the industrial slums of Havana, and there experienced and also witnessed another injustice, the tremendous gaps. Uh, well, we're seeing them again today. Uh, between those on top and those on bottom. And all of this led to the questions that animated my research, because when we humans have, you know, such an enormous capacity for a caring, for sensitivity, for creativity, uh, why has there been so much cruelty, so much insensitivity, uh, so much violence? Is it, as we're often told, inevitable, you know, it's either original sin or selfish genes. Of course, it's the same story, isn't it? I mean, they fight each other, but it's we're bad, we have to be rigidly controlled from the top. Or is there an alternative? 
And so many years later, I set out to do my multidisciplinary, uh, cross-cultural, trans-historical research going way back into prehistory. And uh, what I saw is that, yes, there is an alternative, but we cannot see it through the conventional lenses, through the lenses of conventional social categories, like right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, capitalist, socialist. Uh, and I kept seeing patterns, social configurations, and there were no names for these. So I called one the dominator or domination model and the other one the partnership model. And as I said, it's, you know, in nature, there are polarities. There's hot and cold, uh, there is night and day, but there are also degrees, aren't there? Um, and uh, really, uh, it's going to be a long answer, but if you, I will get to your question now, which is the difference between these two models. And I'll give you some examples. Um, the domination side, uh, uh, we, we see rigid domination systems. Uh, well, Nazi Germany, I, you know, I experienced that, but also uh, a Stalin's former Soviet Union on the left. Uh, they can be religious and, 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 and not just Western, um, like the ISIS or Taliban, the so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance in the United States, uh, which really, what, what do they stand for? They stand for both an authoritarian family. And this is one of the real differences between the study of relational dynamics, which is the methodology introduced in my work, uh, and conventional approaches. It looks at the whole system, including family. And we'll get back to that because uh, my latest book, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, draws a great deal from neuroscience. And of course, families don't just spring up out of thin air, they're part of, they're embedded, like economics, like politics in the larger culture. So you have, for one thing in these, in these cultures, you have authoritarian rule in both the family and the state or tribe. You also have something which conventional categories don't really address as important, socially important, and that is gender. Uh, if you really look at these societies, uh, well, a priority are these, quote, social issues, right? And what are these social issues? Two of them are very clear, childhood and gender. I mean, think about that for a moment. Why? Why is it so important to have the subordination of one form of our species to the other form? And I, that affects, of course, economics, as I'll discuss, values, politics, everything. Uh, and also, in these societies, not only is there the ranking of male and quote masculine, because they're very rigid gender stereotypes over women and the so-called feminine, which 
really are human qualities. Uh, but there is also a lot of built-in institutionalized structural abuse and violence. Now, as you move to the partnership side, uh, I discovered that for millennia, millennia, uh, archaeology, uh, mythology, uh, even DNA studies now, I mean, it's fascinating, show that we lived for millennia orienting in societies orienting more to the partnership side. And I recently did a podcast with a young woman uh, who is a half indigenous uh, American and the commonalities between these indigenous societies and some of the roots, roots, because, you know, today it's difficult, uh, you know, to, to find a pure partnership-oriented society. So there are some. Um, and I, I can get back to that. Uh, but you also see trends in that direction, especially in Northern European nations like Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark. And what is the configuration? Let's, let's look at it for a moment. One, there is more democracy and equality in both the family and the state or tribe. And there is a connection. Uh, number two, gender. Uh, while diversity is valued rather than equated with inferiority and superiority with, you know, uh, and if you look, for example, at the Northern European nations, half of the national legislature is female. And what happens is a tremendous effect on values because as the status of women rises, so also does the status of the so-called, so-called feminine, like caring, caregiving, nonviolence. And, and I'll get back to that uh, because I think it's really important that we understand that the struggle for our future is not between right, left, religious, secular, capitalism, socialism. It's really between these two configurations. And of course, there is no need really for so much built-in violence to maintain, because what is it for? Or abuse, it's to maintain these rigid rankings, right? This in-group versus out-group thinking and acting that is characteristic of the domination system. Uh, and, and, and I want to say something, and I'll, I'll stop in just a moment, that um, people sometimes say that these uh, Northern European nations are socialists. They're not socialists. They have a very strong business sector, but it is precisely because they've moved more to the partnership side so that they have more caring social and economic policies. They invested in their quote, human capital, a term that I really don't like. I prefer human capacity, but it, it is to understand. Um, but, and they have, as I said, much more gender balance, not perfect. Uh, and they 
not coincidentally, this is a configuration, it's not coincidental that they uh, not only pioneered the first peace studies, but the first laws, and this is, again, the relationship between family and society, the first laws making it against the law to use physical discipline against children. I mean, we're talking about patterns here. And I would submit that if we don't understand these patterns, then we cannot understand what we're trying to build. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I so I, I you got my mind wonder going in so many different directions now. Uh, what you just said about patterns got me thinking about uh, how your work is influenced by a systems thinking perspective, right? And that you're know, sure that there's the sort of above the iceberg of you know the events that we see in the world, but beneath that are these patterns um, that are so important. And beneath that are these you know, systems and structures, these mental modes, these ways of thinking, right? And when, I, when I'm hearing you describe um, in this sort of this scale, the spectrum between uh, these polarities of partnership and, and domination are uh, sort of alternatives that uh, sort of across all levels of what we might call a, um, a systems uh, thinking iceberg, right? So it's you know, shifting our values and worldviews toward like to value democracy and equity, um, as well as reflecting that in our system structures and these patterns of, of life to do the same with diversity and how that's valued in terms of gender. I, I just, I don't know, mostly I'm just rambling because I love everything you just said. I don't know. Um, well, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I'm, I am an, 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 an attorney as well as a system scientist, and I came across system science very early. Uh, I, my first job was for an offshoot of the RAND Corporation, the Systems Development Corporation, and lo and behold, they talked about systems analysis. Uh, and, and then later, I became one of the co-founders of the General Evolution Group, uh, and I became acquainted with chaos theory, with nonlinear dynamics, with self-organizing theory. Uh, really, uh, living systems, linear, there are linear, some, a few linear causes and effects, of course, but what you have to understand is the interaction of the various components. And nice. that in itself is a paradigm shift. And of course, I am inviting people to really uh, a colleague of mine calls the conventional categories weapons of mass distraction because they really fragment our consciousness. You know, look here, look there, and think about it. They either marginalize or ignore the majority of humanity, women and children. And not only that, there have been regressive, repressive regimes in every one of our categories. So none of us tell us what we really urgently need to understand, what to build to move out of this ridiculous impasse. Because at, at this level of technological development, the uh, domination system is taking us to an evolutionary, as a species, not as life, as a species to an evolutionary dead end. But I loved what you said about 
uh, patterns rather than random events. And if I may, I'll talk a little bit about modern history because we have been taught to look at the modern progressive movements as random. But if you really look at what happened during the last 300 years, when the Industrial Revolution really started to go into high gear, um, and you see that everyone, and, and, and it, is, it is, by the way, during periods of great disequilibrium that we know from chaos theory and from other, from just plain observation, that human systems, societies are human systems, can uh, really be transformed. So during this period, if you look at these uh, progressive social movements, they've all challenged the same thing. But to see it, you need this, the new lens of the partnership domination social scale. Uh, think of the enlightenment. It challenged the so-called divinely ordained right of kings to rule their co-subjects. Then the feminist movement challenged again the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over women and children in the so-called castles, a military metaphor of their homes. Uh, the abolitionist, the civil rights, the um, Black Lives Matter movements, all challenged again a so-called divinely ordained right of a quote superior race to rule over a quote inferior one all the way to the environmental movement challenging our once hallowed and idealized conquest and domination of nature there's a pattern here but you can't see the pattern if you look at right left religious secular you know it, 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 we really have to have a lens that helps us see reality. Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, oh man. So you asked the question, basically, what kind of future do we want to create? And I think uh, some people call it uh, a, the great transition, uh, a beloved community. Our group's calling it an ecological civilization. Um, this idea, you know, that the UN has used language like a world that works for all. But to move toward a future beyond marginalization and exploitation, uh, beyond uh, the destruction of nature um, and the uh, destruction of people, right, towards something where that is uh, more sustainable, more equitable, more peaceful. Um, the, articulating what that world looks like seems really important. Um, and that's something that, that, uh, that I hope we can do more of. You at one point talked about, uh, you sort of pointed to how in nature there are polarities uh, and sort of use nature as a, uh, you know, a way of describing uh, your sort of domination and, and partnership uh, poles, you might say, right? I love the idea of biomimicry and using nature as a model uh, for how we might restructure human society for the long-term well-being of people on the planet. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, are there lessons that we can learn about partnership from nature, um, about what does partnership society look like? Uh, how would 
a partnership uh, sort of moving closer toward the partnership pole, how would that change our economies, our politics, our systems of governance, our agriculture, our education? I mean, what would what would it look like uh, to have a world built on those principles of democracy, diversity um, that move beyond the sort of right versus left, black versus white, men versus women, domestic versus foreign sort of artificial distractions to marginalize uh, towards something that um, I think you, you you recently, I think, gave a talk about um, going beyond both capitalism and socialism. Um, it's this sort of other future that I'm really interested in sort of teasing out and figuring out, okay, what does this look like? Um, so what do you have to think about that? Yeah. You, 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 you're asking about four questions in one, aren't you? Well, I have a tendency to do that. It's like, uh, it's quite all right because that is systems thinking. Because you can pick anything you want to say, anything that's inspired uh, from my rambling. Well, it's, it's connect, you're connecting dots. And this is what the partnership domination social scale makes it possible to do. Um, and so many things come to mind. Um, one thing that comes to mind is, again, you wouldn't think of building a house without having solid foundations for it uh, or a plan. <laughs> I mean, it can be an informal plan for a very simple house, but something. And you, yet what we see so much are people trying to put Band-Aids on a system that is really founded on domination premises. It has changed. I mean, my goodness. I mean, the last 300 years we've seen I sometimes say it as a joke, but it's not a joke, that when I really get depressed, I think of the European Middle Ages, you know? And yes, there were, you know, there was St. Francis and there was, you know, Mariology at a certain point, but pretty much it was a domination system. You know, the, 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 the Inquisition, the witch burnings, lots of violence publicly, the, a traumatized population, the, the Crusades, uh, women and children. I mean, nobody had any rights. I mean, human rights. And as St. Augustine famously said, everybody, you know, for, an, for anyone to question their status in life was like a nose wanting to be an eye against the laws of nature. Well, we've shifted, haven't we? but not enough. And so that's the first thing that came to mind when you were talking. What also came to mind is that we have a model, not only in trends that are happening today, but in our prehistory. For example, um, the most uh, really um, largest Neolithic, early Neolithic site ever excavated is called Çatalhöyük, and it's in Turkey, in the Anatolian plain. It was a very large settlement for the day, you know, over a thousand people, um, but it had the configuration of the partnership system. In fact, uh, the archaeologist Ian Harder uh, was recently interviewed. There's a film being made. Um, on my life and work by an Emmy-winning um, uh, 
a man and also very marvelous Lucia Ortega and, and Daniel Glick are making it. And they interviewed Ian and Ian said it was a Gylanic, which is a term I, I coined, um, society, a partnership society. Why? Well, for one thing, the size of houses, uh, the grave goods, uh, there are no huge differences in either status or wealth. Number two, uh, gender. Uh, Hodder wrote an article for the Scientific American on gender relations at the time with some astonishment. He wrote that having been born female or male didn't influence uh, one's status or quality of life. And you see this again from the physical evidence, from uh, DNA, from uh, houses, from grave goods, etc. And yes, this was a society you know, the, the third part of the configuration that I mentioned, in which um, there was no sign of warfare for a thousand years. Now, we are taught that warfare is part of human nature, right? What archaeology actually shows uh, is that warfare is at most five to 10,000 years old. Now, it, it, there's a fourth part to the configuration that I really want to mention, and that is story and language. Uh, the story about human nature of a society like the Minangkabau, which is in Sumatra, and it's a, an agrarian society, that orients more to the partnership side, even though it is uh, called by the archaeologist uh, who excavated it, I mean, who, who lived there for, for, for decades, um, a matriarchy. It's not a matriarchy. It was a partnership. It is a partnership-oriented society, just like Chatalhuyak was not a matriarchy. It is a partnership oriented. But see how, how our language keeps us trapped? You know, the only alternatives are either right. mother's rule or father's rule. Domination model. Right? Right? Yeah. Start. So we and we saw we see it in, in, in as I said in northern European societies, which by the way are it are not don't have caring policies, you know, as some people say, because they're more homogeneous, they actually invest more proportionately in caring in NGOs that care for people to whom they are not related. I mean, you know, they disproportionately invest in, in that. In other words, they're not trapped in this in-group versus out-group thinking us against them. Um, it, 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 it's a whole, we, this is what we're trying to move toward. This is what so many of the various groups, but the difference is that this work really identifies not only the configurations, but four cornerstones that we have to build and shift them from domination to partnership because if you look at these modern progressive movements, while they achieved much, 
they paid scant attention, except for feminism and more recently the movement uh, against intimate violence, you know, not just against war, but and all the statistics that we now have about the prevalence of violence. I've been a leader as an attorney in the movement to incorporate both women's rights and children's rights into the purview of human rights theory and action. And I've written extensively. In fact, I wrote the first article for the Human Rights Quarterly on what later became known as women's rights as human rights. And I, well, anyway, it's, it's a sidebar here. But it's not a sidebar because we have to understand that how a society structures the roles and relations of the two forms of humanity is not just a sidebar. It's not just a, quote, women's issue, which is how we have been taught. It's a key social issue. Think about it for a moment. Putin, who's a strongman leader, right, uh, who just launched this awful war, who exports toxic fuels, et cetera, et cetera. In 2018, he substantially lowered the penalty for family violence. So that today, and this is very important that we know this, uh, today, if you hurt or kill a child or a wife or, or, or a husband for that matter, but it's, it's, it's you know, mostly violence against women and children, you have a much lower penalty than if you harm or kill a stranger. Why? Because he, like the people who are pushing these so-called social issues, you know, gender, childhood, family, they understand the first two cornerstones of childhood and gender. This is not a coincidence. And I mm -hmm. think we have to really see the patterns here. But maybe we can that talk a little about caring economics, because I think that that's the third cornerstone. Right. Yeah. So those those four cornerstones, I, the first is uh, what, like family and social structure? No, the um, first is um, the cornerstones are a little different from the configuration. Okay. The first part of the configuration is family and social structure. But the cornerstones that we have to shift from our domination heritage to the partnership side are childhood. And my most recent book, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, um, really draws very heavily, uh, well, from two things. I had been working on this book for seven years when I invited Douglas Fry, the anthropologist, uh, to be my co-author because it takes me a long time to get all the data for because it's so multidisciplinary. Um, uh, but uh, Doug is probably the one of the world's authorities on how we humans lived for millennia, gathering hunting societies. And he calls them the original partnership societies. But uh, what I was going to talk about really is the neuroscience about the first cornerstone, because we know from neuroscience that we are not born with fully formed brains. Uh, the brain develops in interaction 
with its environment, which for humans is primarily social, cultural, uh, and very different depending on the degree of orientation to either end of the partnership domination scale. Uh, and so if a child, for example, uh, learns that physical punishment is not only deserved and, uh, you know, okay, but moral, what does that child learn that it's okay, that it's even moral for a stronger to use force to impose their will on others? I mean, that's a basic lesson, isn't it? Right. And it's not coincidental that whether it was Hitler in Germany, Stalin in the former Soviet Union, the Taliban, ISIS, the Rightist Fundamentalist Alliance, childhood and gender are priorities. And why gender? Because look, if a child grows up with a model of our species in which one form is believed to be superior to the other form, difference, difference is equated with either superiority or inferiority, uh, with dominating or being dominated, with being served or serving, they have a template for all in-group versus out-group thinking and acting, whether it's racism, anti-Semitism, anti-gay uh, people, anti-non-binary people. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's built in, and the two really go together. So no wonder these societies, whether it's the Taliban, ISIS, uh, whether it was Hitler, make these priorities. We have to learn from right. what the dominators are so good at. And if we can then craft a narrative that says difference is dangerous, uh, we all need to be unified under a single voice and authoritative power and in this hierarchical model, um, right, it's becomes a means of control and manipulation through marginalization and yeah. And we all absolutely we have to be told the real story about not only human cultural evolution, and I do tell it in my books. Um I have one book that I really love, which is called Sacred Pleasure, which in itself is is a heresy that applies these two models to sexuality and spirituality, I think, Andrew, you would really love that book um, yeah. because it prefigures a lot that came later. But uh, you wanted to talk uh, about uh, economics and the future. So, and I, I went off. Went yeah, no. So let me, let's, I think all of this is, is coming together um, toward that third piece, right? Of, okay, well, what, what would it look like then uh, to have a, a sort of partnership-inspired um, economy, an, an, an economy of care, um, a partner yeah. economy, a part, you know, of partnerism, of care, of caring. Well, look, if you look at both capitalism and socialism, which is, I think, one of the best ways of fragmenting and diverting us is this struggle between, you know, capitalism and socialism. I mean, both challenge traditions of domination. That's the interesting thing. But they also perpetuated traditions of domination. And in neither Smith nor Marx had anything to say about 
caring for our natural life support systems. As you know, on the contrary, nature was there to be exploited, period. As for the work of caring for people, child care, caring for the sick, the elderly, keeping a clean and healthy home environment, for both of them, it was to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household, so much so that when, I mean, this is where my multidisciplinary background is really helpful. If you look at the law, even as late as when Marx wrote, in most jurisdictions, a woman, a wife, could not sue herself for injuries negligently inflicted on her. Only her husband could for loss of her services. I mean, think about that. And GDP and GNP uh, perpetuate this. Not only do they include activities that harm and take life, like selling cigarettes and the resulting medical costs and funeral costs, or you know, fast foods, what have you, but they fail to include, think about it, the non-monetized life-sustaining sectors. I mean, in the real wealth of nations, as you know, I introduce what I call a whole systems economic map that isn't just the market and the government and the legal economy, but that includes the natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy. And once you do that, then you can see the economic value of the work of caring for people starting at birth and the work of caring for nature. And we at the Center for Partnership Systems, and you can find out more about this, and you can support this work um, at centerforpartnership.org, are working on what we call a social wealth index which shows in economic terms the value of, as I said, caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. And I really think that, again, in our post-industrial knowledge service age, even economists who live in some alternate reality with you know, the so-called rational man and I don't know what else, um, even they unlimited growth. That's that's a, okay. yeah. Even they say that the most important capital, according to them, for this new era is so-called high-quality human capital. I prefer the term, as I said, of you know, of, of another term because this objectifies us again of capacity development. But we know from neuroscience that whether or not we have it largely depends, you know, whether we have these uh, people who are uh, more creative, who are resilient, who are, I mean, it, it, it really hinges very much on the quality of care and education that children receive in the first five years. You know, let's, you mentioned neuroscience, and I know your most recent book uh, really digs into that a bit. Uh, can you say a little bit more about uh, sort of nurturing our humanity and how neuros what what are we what are we learning from sort of the cutting edges of neuroscience about partnership? Well, the first thing that we're learning is that it's not genes, it's gene expression. 
and that whether or not a gene potential is or is not expressed largely depends on this interaction between our genes and our cultural environment, as mediated through families, education, religion, politics, etc. Okay, uh, and that's very basic. But we also are learning something about so-called human nature, because studies show that actually the so-called pleasure centers of our brains light up more when we care and share than when we dominate and win. Now, but that's only if things are equal and our reward system economically, our values, you know, there's always money for prisons, right? Well, what's that? And it's related to gender, these four cornerstones of childhood, gender, economics, and story and language are all interconnected as happens in social systems. Uh, what, what, what we're learning really is that uh, we have to shift them from the domination to the partnership side, but we can't do it without a new frame. And that's what this work offers. It's great. Yeah, I, that's one I, I, I still need to read. It reminds me a little bit of some of the, the yes brain uh, lessons that like Dan Siegel and talks about, but I'd, I'll be curious to see what neuroscience is just fascinating. The brain's fascinating. Um, but see, yeah. I think there are a lot of trends. I mean, the fact is uh, that, for example, Darwin has been interpreted and misinterpreted as mm. what I, a wonderful husband, David Loy, in his book, Darwin's Lost Theory, called an 800-pound gorilla for the domination system. And it's wrong. It's wrong. Because Darwin, in the book on human evolution, actually said that for humans, culture is critical. And matters like love, love, can you imagine? I mean, Darwin and love? But, but that's not the story we're told. And I really want to say that we can all change the story. I mean, every one of us mm. can do that. And it has to change. It has to become the new norm. I think we, you're, you've done such a beautiful job of, of painting a story of, of some of the, the pitfalls of our, our history and in in even our current sort of context. You've painted a beautiful picture of the kind of world that we want to live into. Um, and now you're saying, each of us can be a part of changing the story. Um, and I just, sometimes when we deal in sort of complex, uh, you know, wicked problems, uh, it's easy to get overwhelmed thinking, well, I, how am I going to transform uh, global economic order? How am I going to transform uh, sort of political structures? How, how are we going to move beyond uh, mass distraction? Um, and I think, what I'm thinking, you you have some ideas on very concrete, practical things that each of us uh, in those listening right now could say, yeah, I can contribute to, to the kind of change that would transition from a dominator to a toward a partnership society, and what, what our community is calling an, an ecological civilization. Um, Look, so what, I, where do we begin, right? How do, how do, we, how do we do this? Well, first of all, uh, 
you can vote for leaders that back caring values. And this is really, really important uh, because the, the lines are very clear today in the United States and in other places about the fact that the leaders who present themselves as strong men leaders do not back caring values because what they back is what I call the hidden system of gendered values, that the values, anything that is stereotypically, and I want to emphasize, this has nothing to do with anything inherent in women or men. You know, some women are not caring and men can be very caring. My husband was a very caring man. These are human values. Uh, you can demand more caring values from those already in office. You can propose that standards for caring policies and behaviors are included in corporate charters. You know, corporations are creatures of little charters, right? We can change those charters. And that conformity to these standards is required for memberships in chambers of commerce and other business associations. You can buy from companies that have caring employee consumer and environmental policies. You can really support and participate in movements to raise the status of women worldwide. And every one of us can change the conversation. I mean, that's really where change begins. Remember what I said about St. Augustine and the nose wanting to be an eye if we want to change anything right. fundamentally, including our status in life? Well, you can start with changing the conversation about economics to include the word caring. I mean, every one of us can talk about caring economics at home, at work, at parties, at meetings, in schools, in universities, in public places. I mean, there is momentum. Look, look at how gender is being talked about much more these days. Uh, look about the, uh, the fact that trauma is being recognized as being very, very common, you know, like the adverse childhood experiences, studies. Uh, but we don't recognize these as being important trend or that the American Psychological Association finally said that spanking is not only harmful but ineffective. I mean... There are so many things we can do to really move to a world, well, a world guided by a caring economics where the main investment is caring for people and nature and where children learn the value of caring work in childhood. Um, the schools teach boys and girls how to care for self, for others, for nature. I mean, professions you know that child care workers in the United States, according to the U.S. Department of uh, Labor, earn less than dog walkers. I mean, I love dogs, but this is ridiculous. I mean, training for child care, primary school teaching, other caring professions has to be a top priority. I mean, look what COVID showed. And these jobs have to be highly respected and well-paid and parenting education needs to be prioritized. Again, I can't emphasize enough that those pushing us back 
and I've written a lot about this, make gender and childhood top priorities in their emphasis on so-called social issues, right? These are not, they recognize that they're social issues, for goodness sakes. Let's progressives also do it. And I could go on and on. Yeah. I think we're beginning to run out of time. Well, I have a, a child that turns one year old tomorrow, and I hope that he has the opportunity to live in a caring community of the kind that you described. Um, so in the face of our you know difficult times, we have an enormous complex task ahead of us, um, you know, really trying to change the narrative, to change uh, society on a very fundamental, right? We're talking about fundamental paradigm shifts. Um, it's a big job. Um, so in the midst of that, what gives you hope? <laughs> well, you know, hope has to be grounded. And what gives me hope is really my research and the research of others, like the research from neuroscience, that completely debunks this notion that war is human nature, that we're totally selfish and sinful and I don't know what. No, I mean, yes, we have those capacities, but whether they are or are not expressed. You know, I, I want to tell you about one study, which is that there is a certain gene, and, and this is all in nurturing our humanity uh, and in other books, but there is a gene that some men carry that predisposes them to violence. But the study showed, a Danish study it was, that only those men who had what we would call adverse childhood experiences expressed that gene. Now, I mean, the evidence is there, but without a frame that puts it all together, it's here, it's there, you know, neuroscience makes the headlines and no, no, this is not the way to change the system. We have to have a long-term and a short-term strategy. And that's what this work is about. Well, Dr. Eisler, your work gives me hope. And I have absolutely loved this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, for those of you listening, if you want to know more about uh, Rianne's work and, and what she's up to, please check out her website, uh, RianneEisler.com, as well as the Center for Partnership Systems. And we'll be sure to put links uh, to both of those in the, in the episode description, and maybe even throw some links to, to some of the, the resources that she referred to. Um, it, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for sharing with us. It's been my pleasure. And uh, speaking of resources, we have resources for parenting, the uh, Caring and Connected Parenting Guides. We have uh, a wonderful resource called the Partnership Technology Toolkit coming out soon because, hey, these new virtual reality, I mean, it could be a nightmare or it could be wonderful. Hmm. So, oh, that sounds great. We'll have to look forward to that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank all of our viewers for being with us. I, I'm counting on you to change the conversation. That's that really everybody can do that.